Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.2bcmtv.org or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. Psalm 131 is where we are. We are making our way through these psalms of ascent here, ranging from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, and we're coming ever so close to the end. But we're in Psalm 131 this morning. And what you'll notice here about this psalm is that we have before us not only one of the shortest of these psalms of ascent, it's only three verses, like Psalm 133, Psalm 134 as well, but it's also one of the shortest psalms in the entire Psalter. It's only to be outdone by Psalm 117, which is only two verses long. So it's a very short psalm. It's a very brief psalm. However, Charles Spurgeon, he had this to say about Psalm 131 and its brevity. He says, this is one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest ones to learn. One of the shortest psalms to read, it's one of the longest psalms to learn. Now, what does Spurgeon mean? In other words, Spurgeon is saying that while Psalm 131 is short in terms of its length, it's an easy psalm to read, it would probably take you all of about 30 seconds. However, learning this psalm Actually applying this psalm, bringing this psalm to bear on our lives, and and living out what this psalm teaches, Spurgeon says, it takes a long time. In fact, it takes a lifetime. It takes a long time to learn this, and friends, it isn't an easy lesson. In fact, Spurgeon describes Psalm 131 as having a short ladder, and yet one that reaches a great height. It, it's a short psalm, but it's, it's not an easy psalm. So what then is Psalm 131 all about? Well, we find the answer before we read. I just want you to notice there in verse 2, we see that David, the author of this particular psalm, has found the secret to a calmed and quieted soul. A calmed and quieted soul. Now, what's that? In other words... David has learned the secret of contentment. The secret of contentment. Verse 2, But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. So David, notice, he has found the secret. He has found the answer to a calmed and quieted soul, a contented soul. But as we'll see, this secret, it hasn't come easy for David. No. In fact, here in Psalm 131, we sort of get a window into David's own heart. Because, in effect, David, he's he's saying here to us this morning, okay, learn from me. I've I've learned this. And here's, here's what I've learned. Here's what I have discovered. And so we sort of get a a front row seat, sort of an intimate access into this man's soul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in these three brief verses into the inner life here of a man who's learned the secret of contentment. So he he isn't anxious, he isn't worried, he isn't dissatisfied, he, he, he isn't on edge, His soul isn't noisy. It isn't chaotic inside of him. No, he is genuinely and truly at rest. And what's the answer, you ask? Well, I hate to spoil it, but I'm going to. Verse 3, O Israel, hope in the Lord. 
Friends, the answer to a calmed and quieted soul, a contented soul, David says, is hoping in the Lord. So Psalm 131 is about the kind of contentment, the kind of stillness, the kind of quietness of soul that is rooted, listen, not in the circumstances of life, not in the comforts of this world, but is rooted in God. And it is being able to rest in God's perfect wisdom and God's providential care over my life and ultimately finding my contentment and my joy and my satisfaction in Him. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. And so here David is going to show us this morning the secret of contentment, the secret of a calmed and quieted soul. Beloved, does that describe you this morning? Is your soul quieted inwardly? Or is, is it noisy and chaotic right now? Is, is Psalm 131 your experience? Because if not, if not, what's the noise going on inside your soul this morning? Psalm 131, let's read it together. See if we can understand David's answer here. Would you stand with me? out of honor for the reading of God's word, if you're able. Beginning in verse 1. A song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. You can be seated. I think first, some definitions are in order here. It's always good to define our terms because, first of all, what is contentment? What is contentment? Because, as you'll notice, that word is found nowhere here in Psalm 131. So what, what is contentment? I love that our women's ministry this semester is studying together the theme of contentment, but what is it? What is godly, Christian, biblical contentment? What describes a person who is content in life? In Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, the Apostle Paul says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Content, that the word it means to be satisfied. It means to have enough. And so one of the first things we learn there about contentment is that contentment, it isn't situational. It isn't situational. It isn't based on someone's circumstances. No, Paul says, whatever the situation, whatever the circumstance, I have learned to be content. He goes on to say, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, facing abundance and need. So Paul says, it doesn't matter the situation. It doesn't matter the circumstance. I, I can be content, whether I have much, whether I have little, whether it's good, whether it's bad. So contentment, it isn't situational. It isn't circumstantial. That's the first thing you need to know about contentment. Here's the second thing you need to know about contentment. Contentment must be learned. It must be learned. In Philippians 4.11, he says, I have learned the secret of being content. So contentment is something that must be taught, and it is something that must be learned. So listen, no one comes into this world... No one is born naturally a contented person. No, true 
Contentment is something that must be learned. It is something that must be taught. It is something that must be cultivated. You must learn how to be content. And Paul, he had learned the secret in Philippians chapter 4. And here in Psalm 131, David is teaching us what he has learned about contentment and where and how, how to find it. So contentment, it isn't situational, it isn't circumstantial, and it isn't something, or it is something that must be learned, it must be taught. We, it isn't instinctive to our naturally discontented souls. But what is it? We still haven't fully defined it yet. So what is contentment? Well, I've given you this definition before, but I'll give it to you again because it's just pure gold. It comes from the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs in his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, which is really just a 228 exposition of that one verse in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. Burroughs says this, he defines contentment as that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. I think it'll be up there on the screen for you. Let me say it again. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Now that's wordy, as the Puritans usually were. And it sounds really good, but pastor, what does it mean? So before we jump into Psalm 131 and allow David to define it and show us how to get it, let, let me just briefly help you understand Burroughs' definition here because I think it'll shed light on Psalm 131 couple of things here. Number one, contentment, not only what we saw earlier, but contentment is something internal. It is something internal. It's not external. It is an inward heart thing. It is an inward soul thing. Burroughs says it is the work of the spirit indoors. So we're not, we're not working on the outside of the house here. We're, we're remodeling the inside of the house. Meaning, you, you can change your outward circumstances, and, and all can be peaceful, and all can be calm, and by all appearances, you, you seem to look content externally, but inwardly, you're a mess. Your heart, your soul is in turmoil, and it's chaos in here. So it is, it is something internal. Here's the second thing. Contentment is a quietness of soul. A quietness of soul. In other words, things around you, they can be chaotic externally. Troubles, trials, afflictions, storms of life. And yet in your spirit, in your, in your inward being, there is a quietness and a calmness of spirit. And that's what David is describing there, notice in verse 2, and he says, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. In other words, his soul is at rest, no matter what's going on externally. So it's a quietness of soul. Here's the last thing about this definition from Burroughs. Contentment rests in the good wisdom and sovereign providence of God over my life. The good wisdom, it rests in the good wisdom and sovereign providence of God over my life. That's what Burroughs means by freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Meaning that contentment is resting in, it is submitting to, it is delighting in the fact that whatever circumstances I may find myself in, God's hand is in it. And he has put me there. It's been orchestrated and designed and purposed by the wisdom and plans of my sovereign heavenly father who loves me and purposes nothing but good for me. And thus I can freely submit to and delight in whatever circumstances he finds me and puts me 
That's Christian contentment. Because he's in it. And because I have him. And here notice, in Psalm 131, that's exactly what we see in David's own soul. He's inviting us in here, and so we we get now firsthand, one, one commentator called it holy eavesdropping, we get firsthand how David wrestled with and he learned the secret of contentment, and he basically says, okay, learn this from me. And notice the structure here in this psalm. Notice, we learn first what he doesn't do, what he puts off in verse 1, notice, with three negative statements that would seek to rob him of contentment, a calmed and quieted soul. And then in verse 2, we learn what David does do, what he seeks to put on instead. And he gives this very helpful illustration here of a weaned child. And then in verse 3, there is a transition now where he moves from internal introspection and personal prayer to an external invitation and exhortation to us. And he gives really the secret of it all. So three verses, three points. Number one, a subdued and humbled soul, verse one. Number two, a calmed and quieted soul, verse two. Number three, an invitation to hopeful contentment, verse three. So let's walk through these and see this together, and we'll make application along the way. Number one, just notice a subdued and humbled soul in verse 1. Notice what David says here. He, he mentions three different things. Notice those three negative phrases there. Look there, verse 1. He says, O Lord, first, my heart is not lifted up. Second, my eyes are not raised too high. Third, I do not occupy myself with things too great and marvelous for me. So notice there, those three negative statements. Three things that David has learned not to do. In fact, we could say these are three enemies of contentment. So what are they? What are these three enemies? Well, in verse 1, David identifies... That the most serious enemy, if we, had to, if we had to summarize it here in one word, the, the most serious enemy, the greatest threat, the greatest hindrance to contentment is pride. It's pride. Pride is the most serious hindrance to a calmed and quieted soul. So David, he identifies this as the greatest enemy to his contentment. It's pride. Verse 1a, it is a heart that is lifted up. Verse 1b, it is eyes that are raised too high. Verse 1c, it is an occupation with things that are too great and too marvelous for me. Now what are these, friends? These are all forms of pride. And in verse 1, David is trying to distance himself from these. He's he's trying to put these things to death. So it's, it's not as if he's arrived here. No, this is just honesty and transparency with himself. Verse 1, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great. So in other words... David is seeking here to mortify the sin of pride in his life. Why? Well, because not only is it an offense to God, pride is. Psalm 16, verse 5, or Proverbs 16, verse 5, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. It's not only an offense to God, but David also recognizes that pride is the enemy of contentment. How so? How? Well, just notice with me these three phrases here in verse 1, these three enemies. How is pride, the enemy, the greatest threat to our contentment? Well, first of all, just notice the progression here in verse 1. David moves, notice, from internal heart attitudes to external actions. So it's originating in the heart and it's moving 
outward. Look there, verse 1. From the heart, internal desires, to the eyes, whether in terms of haughty eyes or, or, or what, what he sees and then he wants, he craves. And then notice finally what he preoccupies himself with, his life, his actions, his thoughts. So do you see the progression there? And how at each level he's seeking here to put pride to death in his own soul. Verse 1, I am not this. Enemy number one, look there, a prideful heart. Verse 1, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. Pride begins in the heart. Pride is the root of all evil. Self-love, pride, if you think about it, is the original sin. James Montgomery Boyce comments here. He says, pride is the most serious and pervasive of all sins. A self-exalting heart. So rather than a heart that is bowed down before God, rather than a heart that is humbled before God, rather than a heart that acknowledges its dependency upon God, this is a prideful heart. This, this is a heart that is lifted up. That's enemy number one. Enemy number two, notice, we could call it prideful ambition and desire. Prideful ambition and desire. Look at verse 1b. My eyes are not raised too high. Now, this here, it could be simply a reference to haughty eyes, proud eyes. Proverbs 6.16 says, one of the things the Lord hates above all else is haughty eyes, proud eyes, eyes that are raised too high. So this, this could be eyes that are looking down on others. We know this battle well, don't we? We compare ourselves to others. We, we look down on others. It's being critical of others. It's being envious of others, envious in the ways that maybe God has blessed them, recognition perhaps that they received, envious of what they have that we don't. And friends, that isn't a contented soul. It's pride. But this could also mean eyes raised too high in terms of selfish, self-seeking ambition meaning seeking the acceptance of others, seeking the admiration of others, seeking the applause and the adulation of others. So these are eyes that are raised too high in terms of prideful ambition and desire. We, 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 we aren't happy. We aren't content with what we have. We aren't content with where we are. We aren't content with our situation and our station in life, and we just want more. We, we, just, we just want something different and our eyes are too high. That's prideful ambition and desire. But then, finally, enemy number three, notice there, I want to spend just a moment here looking at this one because this, this is an interesting one. What does David mean here? Look at verse 1c. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me? What does David mean by that? Here's the third enemy. We could call it prideful presumption and preoccupation. Prideful presumption and preoccupation, meaning David is guarding himself from presuming upon and being preoccupied with matters that are too marvelous, too great, too hard, too difficult, too beyond him. In other words, he refuses to preoccupy his mind and his heart with matters that exceed his own understanding. Hidden things. The mysterious ways of God. 
the circumstances of his life, things that would be too great, too marvelous for him to understand. Why? Why does he refuse to occupy himself with these things? Well, because he recognizes, friends, that that would be pride. To think that he could comprehend that. Because he recognizes his pride. So he's distancing himself here from prideful presumption. Prideful preoccupation. And by doing so, he's recognizing his own human limitations in understanding the providence of God in his life. And when you think about David's life, I mean, this could have been any number of circumstances, right? Couldn't it? Here was a man who was chosen by God to be king. But King Saul, who's king at the time, he became jealous of him, basically put out a hit on David's life. And so David fled. He became a wanted man. He's living in caves, for crying out loud. And we read in several psalms about David his waiting for God's purposes, for God's timing to be fulfilled. Why, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord? So listen, David, he learned what it meant to trust the sovereignty of God and the wisdom of God. He learned to wait on God's timing because there was much he just didn't understand. And in verse 1, David, he refuses to become preoccupied with this. He refuses to become obsessed over matters that his small, finite mind cannot understand about God and his mysterious, inscrutable ways. And thus, as a result, his heart is at rest. And he is content. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to let God be God. And I wonder this morning, how about you? I mean, if you live long enough, you will experience trials, painful suffering, things that will perplex you, bewilder you, and you will be tempted to become preoccupied with Tempted to endlessly review and rehearse them in your mind, thinking that if I just think hard enough, if I just think deep enough, then I'm going to get an answer into why. And guess what? You won't be content. No, contentment is the fruit of refusing to be preoccupied with matters that exceed your understanding. Sinclair Ferguson writes this. This is helpful. He says, contentment is the fruit of a mindset that understands its limitations. David did not allow himself to be preoccupied with what God was not pleased to give him. Neither did he allow his mind to become fixated on things that God had not been pleased to explain to him. Such preoccupations, he says, suffocate contentment. If, it in, if I insist on knowing exactly what God is doing and what he plans to do with my future, if I demand to understand his ways with me in the past, I can never be content until I am equal with God. And friends, that's pride. And David has learned how to subdue and humble his soul before God by killing the sin of pride. That's what he's doing here. So, how then do we put pride to death? As, as the Puritans say, mortify it in our lives. And, and in turn, grow in humility, in a, in a humbled, subdued heart. Because Listen, a person doesn't just wake up one day and say, you know what, I think today I'm going to be humble. No. So how do we kill pride and foster humility? Well, Jonathan Edwards, he had, he had two helpful ways we do this. How we kill pride and we grow in humility. And he said that humility arises from a perception of two things. 
an understanding of two things. This is how you grow in humility. Number one, a perception of our smallness, our creatureliness. And number two, our sinfulness, our sinful condition before God. So first, he means cultivating there a sense of our smallness as creatures compared to the greatness of God. The wisdom of God, the power of God, the sovereignty of God. And how small we are. And Edward says, if you think deeply on that, you know what's going to happen? You're going to grow in humility. But secondly, he said, it means cultivating a sense of our sinfulness. He calls it our vileness as well. Meaning, meditating on the fact that you and I, we have sinned against an infinitely holy God, and we deserve His righteous condemnation. And yet God, in His infinite grace and mercy and His love, He has made a way for sinners to be right with Him, to be justified in His sight through Calvary's cross, Christ bearing our sin in our place for our sins. As we think about that, we're humbled. In fact, we saw it last week. Look back in Psalm 130. Look there, verses 3 and 4. The psalmist says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The psalmist, listen, he knows exactly what he deserves. If, if you should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? He knows what he deserves, but he also knows in verse 4 that with God there is forgiveness. And so he understands the righteousness of God, and yet he has tasted the forgiveness of God. And as a result of that, his soul is subdued and humbled before Almighty God. And beloved, that's how you kill pride, and that's how you grow in humility. You think on those two things, your smallness and your sinfulness. And David's soul is subdued, it's humbled before the greatness and the wisdom and the sovereignty and the mercy of Almighty God. And so if you ever are going to be content, you must come to terms with your own pride. And the only way to do that is come to Calvary's cross. Is that you? Have you come to Calvary's cross? But then, notice in verse 2, David shifts gears now. And verse 1, instead of telling us what he doesn't do, those three negative Statements. Notice in verse 2, now he tells us what he does do in learning the secret of contentment. Second, number two, a calmed and quieted soul. So verse 1, notice it's a description of what he doesn't do, how he's learned contentment, now what he does do. As well as, notice this very helpful illustration here of what a calmed and quieted soul looks like. Look at verse 2. Notice the contrast now. But... So instead of a proud heart, instead of haughty eyes, instead of prideful presumption and preoccupation with secret hidden things, but I have calmed or stilled and quieted, meaning my soul is at rest, my soul. But verse 2, when it comes to the providence of God, which is ultimately inscrutable, his ways aren't our ways. His thoughts aren't our thoughts. David says, I have stilled and I have quieted my soul. So when it comes to trying to understand the difficulties, the trials, the circumstances of my life, when I can't make sense of them, instead what I do is I trust the providence of God over my life. And in doing that, I'm able to calm and quiet my soul. Or as Burroughs says, I can now freely submit to and delight in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Meaning that in order to have a calmed and quieted soul, you must rid your soul of certain things and instead trust the goodness 
and the providence of God in your life. In what he has given me. And where he has put me. And ultimately, believing that he alone can satisfy me. So, a few heart-probing questions here. If you're taking notes, maybe individually, maybe in your small group tonight, to see if you have a calmed and quieted soul. Four things, really briefly, I want you to think about. Number one, is there something in your life that you overwant? You overcrave, you desire too much that God hasn't seen fit to give you. What might that be for you? Is there something that you want so badly you, you don't have, it's leading you to be discontent in life? Number two, is there something you are clinging to so tightly? So this would be something you have that you overvalue. Could be your children, could be your spouse, could be your job, could be your money, could be your social standing. Something you're clinging to so tightly that you couldn't imagine being content without it. Number three, is there something that you constantly worry about that you anxiously fret over being taken away from you that you can't trust the sovereignty of God over your life? Friends, that will only breed discontentment. That will only breed a noisy, chaotic soul, not a calmed and quieted one. Fourth, is there any ungrateful murmuring in your heart? Perhaps you're unhappy with your job, you're discontent with your children, your spouse, the house you live in, the things you have, you're dissatisfied with the amount of money you have in the bank, the things you have, the things you don't have that are leading to ungrateful murmuring. And it's causing you to undervalue the goodness and the blessing of God in your life. Listen very carefully to me. If, if you are discontent, if you are troubled, if you are anxious or unhappy, I almost guarantee you it's probably because of one of those four things. I don't know what it is for you, but I can tell you most definitely it is one of these four things that is causing you discontentment. It's keeping you from a calmed and a quieted soul. Because then, notice what the contented soul is like. Look at verse 2. If it's not these things, then what is it? And David, he gives this incredible word picture here to describe what a calm and quieted soul is like. In fact, he repeats it twice for emphasis. Notice, so here's how he has calmed and quieted his soul. Verse 2. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. So here's how. Verse 2. David compares his contented soul to that of a weaned child with its mother. Now, do you know what a weaned child is? A child who isn't weaned is instinctively restless, fretful, fussy, demanding. I mean, he's rooting around frantically in mama's arms and he's looking for one thing and one thing alone. However, the weaned child, weaned from their mother's milk, is simply content now, no longer restless, no longer demanding, simply content to be held by mama. As one commentator writes, in contrast to the nursing child who needs the mother to satisfy his biological requirement for nourishment, the weaned child, on the other hand, chooses to lean on the mother because of love and delight in her. So why then this comparison, you think? Why, why this word picture? What is it that David sees here 
in a weaned child that is comparable to a calmed and quieted soul. And I came up with five things. You could probably come up with more, right? I mean, that's what we got to do with word pictures. we got to unpack what they mean, right? Five things it could mean. Why a weaned child? Here they are. Number one, a weaned child is cut off from his mother's milk. And so perhaps David is implying that he's quieted his own soul by cutting off, by weakening, by weaning himself of his attachments to the world. Friends, one of the reasons we are so discontent is because of our attachments to this world. We are way too attached to the stuff of this world. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but in heaven. Galatians 6, Paul says, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. We're way too attached. And so either you can wean yourself or God will wean you. And it may be painful. Here's the second thing. A weaned child is incapable of doing anything by himself. I mean, he, he recognizes he isn't really in control of anything. Nor does he know what's best for him. I was talking, a fellow church member and I, we were talking about our conversations with our own kids in which on several occasions we've, we've said to them recently, just trust me, I'm your father. I know what you need. Right? I know what's best for you. And then feeling conviction because we often do the exact same thing with our heavenly father. And he says, I know what you need. I know what's best for you. And friends, we're just like that child. Here's a third reason. A weaned child is reliant upon his mother for everything. So likewise, David, he calms and quiets his soul by cultivating here dependency on God. He recognizes all things come from him. Where, where in your life right now do you need to depend and rely upon God? Fourth, a weaned child, a contented child, is happy with whatever his mama gives him. So, David here, he calms and quiets his soul by cultivating contentment with whatever God chooses to give him. He has learned to be happy. He has learned to be satisfied with whatever God gives him. So listen, Christian. Because our God is infinitely good and infinitely loving and infinitely wise and infinitely sovereign over our lives, we must be content to resign ourselves to His will in our present conditions and the future events of our lives. So that when God wills, and I don't say this lightly, when God wills sickness... It's better to be sick than it is to be healthy. When God wills poverty, it's better to be poor than it is to be rich. When God wills death, it's better to die than to live. Because he loves his children. And he knows what's best for his Children, so we resign ourselves to whatever he gives us. Fifth, finally, a wean child is just at rest and contented and happy to just be with his mama. They don't need anything from him. I just want to be with him. And so verse 2, this is a picture then of David's own restfulness, his contentment. His satisfaction, his joy, no matter the circumstances of his life, just knowing God and being in the presence of God. 
Beloved, David has found the secret here to contentment. And he has found that it comes from God and it comes from him alone. And you may say, well, where do you see that, Pastor? Because God isn't even mentioned there in verse 2. And the reason I know that is because what he says in the next verse. Verse 3, O Israel, hope in the Lord. There's the connection. You see the connection now between verse 2 and verse 3? This is the secret. This is the answer to contentment. This is how he has calmed and quieted his discontented soul. He's hoping in God. Which leads to the third point. Third, finally, an invitation to hopeful contentment. There's a transition now, notice in verse 3, that takes place. David turns now from his inward reflection and prayer, notice now to this external exhortation to us all, to all of God's people. So he goes from, notice, sharing here his own personal experience and how he's learned and trusted and found the secret of being content to now, notice, an encouragement for us. Verse 3, look there. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So he concludes now, notice with this exhortation, to hope in God. So what then is the secret of contentment? What, what, what's made him able to quiet and calm his soul? Friends, it's by hoping in the Lord. In fact, the exact same encouragement we saw from Last week, the psalmist, look back in Psalm 130, verse 7. O Israel, hope in the Lord. Now here in verse 3. O Israel, hope in the Lord. So what then does it mean to hope in the Lord? Friends, he's hoping in the Lord for his life now, the present life, and on into the future. That, that, that's what's created here, this contentment. So hoping in the Lord, it isn't wishful thinking. It is confident certainty. Don't confuse hoping with wishing. No, no, he, he, it is certainty that God will keep his promises. He will do what he said he will do, that they cannot be frustrated, and he's going to always do what's best for his children. And therefore, we too, as a result of hoping in the Lord can have a calm and quiet soul. But verse 3, hoping in the Lord also means that God himself is the greatest treasure. He is the greatest joy. And, and David finds his greatest pleasure, his, his greatest contentment in God. That's the connection between verse 2 and 3. God alone can quiet his restless soul. And he finds his greatest fulfillment in being curled up in the arms of God. Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul says in Psalm 16, at your right hand, O oh God, are pleasures forevermore. In your presence there's fullness of joy. Here's a soul that's happy in God. So, let me ask you, where is your hope this morning? It can be very easy to misplace your hope. We, we are easily anxious. We are easily discontented, friends, because we easily put our hope in the wrong things, in, in the wrong places. So if your hope is in others, if your hope is in the things that you have or the things that you want or some kind of preferred future for yourself, you're eventually going to be disappointed. That is misplaced hope. But David says, O oh Israel, hope in the Lord. Fanny Crosby, you know who Fanny Crosby was? She wrote several hymns that we know and cherish. One we sang today, Blessed Assurance. Pass me not, O gentle Savior. Jesus, keep me near the cross. To God be the glory. All these hymns Fanny Crosby wrote. But Fanny, she was blind at the age of six. She developed an infection in her eyes that damaged the optic nerves and made her blind. 
How discontent would you be if you couldn't see? She wrote this poem at a young age. Very young. Oh, what a happy child I am. Although I cannot see, I am resolved in this world. Contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind? I cannot, nor I won't. All the way, my Savior leads me. What have I to ask besides? Can I doubt his tender mercy, who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, here by faith in him to dwell. For I know, whate'er befall me, Jesus does all things well. She would go on to say this. It seemed intended by the blessed providence of God that I should be blind all my life. And I thank him for that dispensation. If perfect earthly sight were offered me tomorrow, I would not accept it. For I might not have sung hymns to the praise of my God if I had been distracted by the beautiful things I could see. O Israel, hope in the Lord. Let's pray. We trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.2bcmtv.org or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.